0: Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF. I'm Michael Popak, and I'm joined every Wednesday with my co-anchor, Karen Friedman Agnifolo tonight. We're going to start with picking up with where we left off last week, where we talked about the Buffalo shooting. Unfortunately, we have another mass shooting event. And this time in a middle school, again, in Texas, in Uvalde, Texas, our hearts go out anywhere between 14 and 18. Middle school children have been shot and killed by an 18-year-old in Uvalde, Texas. As we said last week, we knew that the Buffalo shooting was not going to be enough to change gun control law, and now we have another epic mass shooting in America. We'll also talk about the Supreme Court asked to referee the long-growing fight between New York and New Jersey over who controls the ports and waterfront for East Coast's busiest port. Is it New York or is it New Jersey? And we'll talk about why is it even the Supreme Court? That is the court of original jurisdiction hearing the matter, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about a North Dakota federal judge, Trump appointee, who has stopped enforcement of the non-discrimination provisions of Obamacare to prevent a Christian insurer from being penalized because they don't wanna pay for gender affirming care, including, and I'm not making this up, in the judge's decision, On the grounds that if he doesn't enjoin them, babies will get sex change operations. Yep, you heard that right. The third story we're going to cover on tonight's pod is that the Supreme Court has hollowed out yet another criminal justice, criminal reform precedent on the books. Clarence Thomas has written, who else? A decision for the six to three majority overturning 10 years of precedent which is undermining the ability for a prisoner to bring a habeas corpus petition on ineffective assistance of counsel grounds. And lastly, no show would be complete if we didn't go back to KFA stomping grounds and talk about the Manhattan DA's office, this time led by Alvin Bragg, going to court this week to make sure that Trump's longtime CFO, Chief Financial Officer, Alan Weisselberg, has his criminal charges stick and that they aren't dismissed. What a pod and what a co-host. Karen, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm the, the shooting is obviously the news is just coming out. It was 14 children. Re- and then all of a sudden now I'm reading, it might be up to 18, I think 21 people total. I think they might even be elementary school children. I'm reading as, as young as second grade, which are no, seven year second olds. To,
0: they're second to 4th they they're second to fourth grade yeah, that's elementary
1: f- school. These little, 14, these are babies. Yeah, yeah, fourteen to
0: eighteen years old. You
1: know, this is this is uh, you know th- this is there's fourteen. Yes, four, you mean fourteen to eighteen um, kids have been children, have been, yeah, were killed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But they they're yeah. little little tiny kids, and it's like the Sandy Hook elementary school shooting. You know, and, and in Sandy Hook, it was I think twenty kids were killed, and and that wasn't enough for for gun reform, but here we have another what's looking like 18 children, 18 young children also murdered in another shooting. And it's just it's not going to happen. And, you know, I think what I think it's interesting. And and if you sort of read what's coming out and and I know that later tonight, the president is going to speak to the nation about yet another shooting. uh, And we'll learn a lot more between now that when we're taping and when this actually airs. But, but we're sort of already seeing a lot of the same rallying cry. You know, the, the people on the right who are second amendment people and love their guns are, are already saying this is why more people need to be armed because you've got someone like this, this uh, shooter who is unhinged, kills his grandmother and then goes and shoots up in elementary school more the, if more people had guns and more people were armed, they could have protected these children. The teachers should be armed. Everybody should be armed. And they truly believe that. And I think I predict you're going to see a spike in gun purchases after this because this is what happens. And you'll also see schools with armed guards, you know, that, uh, so that nobody can come in and do this sort of thing. So, you know, it's interesting. I was um, I, I was thinking about this today and thinking I happen to be at the White House and was there when Obama um, was giving a sort of post Sandy Hook um, speech to a, a fairly large room full of people. It wasn't like I was there talking to the president, but I happened to be in the audience and he cried. He, he actually cried. It was so powerful and so um, such a difficult, you know, just seeing these young children um, be victims of mass shootings like this. And, I, and I'm sure Biden will be equally impassioned, but I just don't see anything changing. And if anything, I see more guns being purchased because that's, that's what history has shown us, that after each mass shooting, there's a spike in, in gun purchasing.
0: Well, that's the role of the, of the commander in chief of the president of the United States to be the compassionate person in chief. And we saw it with Obama, with Sandy Hook, We all saw it on television. You have, I didn't know you were in the room. That's, that's uh, amazing.
1: It was pretty incredible.
0: With tears in his eyes. We see it with Biden. Unfortunately, he's now had to take the podium at, in the white house. Now the second time, second time in a week to talk about the loss of innocence, the loss of innocent Americans, in this case, children, you know, what we didn't see during the Trump days when there was mass shootings and there were mass shootings during the Trump administration. We never saw him take to the podium. We never saw him comfort the nation because to do so would be to undermine his, in his view, his base and their beliefs about the preeminent role of the Second Amendment in their life and uh, really over all the other amendments and all the other liberties. And the result is, as we said um, last week, if, if 20 plus children in Parkland I'm sorry, in Sandy Hook was not enough, if 18 in Parkland, Florida was not enough, 14 in Texas. What is the number, we asked rhetorically, that is enough to get the leadership of the GOP to move to the center and pass legitimate, meaningful gun reform in this country, recognizing that we're not talking about eliminating the second amendment from the constitution. It's not going anywhere. We talked about the reasons why last week, but you can have sensible gun control and gun reform around it at the center aisle. And we don't, because we don't have the leadership. You need, you need leadership, not pandering to your base, not pandering to your social media crowd, um, not throwing raw meat to your voters, your core voters, but leadership. And there, and we are lacking the leadership on the other side. I mean, Elon Musk had some ridiculous comment last week that he's, I used to vote Democrat, but I'm going to switch to Republican because it's the Democrats that are roiling up America and causing division. Are you effing out of your mind? Um, we are. We've been waiting in the center aisle for leaders to come join us there to pass sensible... Fill in the blank policy, whether it's related to gender uh, rights, transgender people rights, abortion rights, any so you fill in the blank social issue. And of course, at the core, the gun control around the Second Amendment, and we're the left standing at the altar with no other leader from the other side joining us to do bipartisan legislation. That's it, plain and simple. Look, we've we've devoted an entire show to it. We we're sorry to bring the first episode back on such a, a dour moment, but Karen's right. We talked about it pre-pre uh, pre-recording. It would be foolish for us and 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 to have ignored the shooting. And we'll as we get more details, you know, Ben and I'll cover it on the weekend and, and beyond. Let's let's turn now, Karen, to the four four topics that we're gonna cover today. And let's It's a weird segue, but let's change gears and talk about the Supreme Court and what's called original jurisdiction that the Supreme Court has in very limited circumstances. In this case, when two states are fighting over something that matters to them, and that is the Waterfront Commission, which if some of the people like me that like old movies will remember the movie On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando, which came out a year after the Waterfront Commission was formed by the states of New York and New Jersey in 1953. That commission, which I learned in doing research for the pod, consists of two commissioners. I thought it was like this big giant commission that had like you know a dozen people on it, like a giant board. It's not. It's one from New York and it's one from New Jersey. There is a contract called a compact when it's between states between the two states that regulates all um, activities, workers, licensing, and the like policing in and around the ports of New York and New Jersey and cargo traffic that happens along those waterfronts. Now in 1953, it was about 80% New York cargo going through New York, 20% New Jersey. Today, in 2022, it is 80% in New Jersey and 20% in New York. And New Jersey's sort of had enough with um, the log jam of two commissioners, no veto power, basically the New York commissioner having as much power as the New Jersey commissioner over these issues, even though New Jersey has by far all the fees, the costs, the expenses and the issues on their side of the Harbor. And so, you know, People have gone to court, entities have gone to court to try to either keep New Jersey in the contractor compact with New York or for New Jersey to get out of it because they want to get out of it. And so the fundamental question, Karen, is can a state that has signed a contract with another state to create something, to work together towards something, can one exit when Either the usefulness of the original contract has now fallen by the wayside, or just because it wants to. So that's the question: Can New Jersey exit the compact? What do you think?
1: So this is one of those. Um, it's funny. So the waterfront commission is he- the New York commissioner is this uh, gentleman named Walter Arsenal. War- Walter Arsenal used to be, among other. Uh, positions. He worked at the Manhattan DA's office and he was the head of the homicide investigation unit. Did you and I know worked him? for him. Oh, I worked you under worked him,
0: for him. Oh. many, many, many
1: years ago. And hey, Walter- I love
0: this story. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> so Walter Arsenal is sort of a legendary crime fighter. He was somebody who back in the heyday of the early 90s, late 80s and early, early 90s, when there were just crime was rampant in New York city and in Manhattan. I mean, there were stories that, that used to go around back then that, that, Police officers would go down the street and they would see what looked like um, a group of, of men or a group of kind of kids kicking around what they thought was a ball, and it was a, a person's head, you know. Or they would torture people. These gangs would torture people by gouging their their eyes out with hot spoons. And I mean, just the the I, I remember the stories. But I was in the homicide investigation unit. I think it was in the late 90s. And back in those days, there was a reason to have that kind of um, crime fighting because, you know, just they had to get murders under control. There was, you know, 5000 murders. in New York City and, you know, just like 10 times the amount of of serious crime as there is now. And that was Walter. And so Walter left and um, became head of the Waterfront Commission after a scathing, I think 13 years ago, the attorney, the inspector general of New York uh, wrote a scathing report about the waterfront commission and it was corrupt and all these bad things were happening and so they brought walter in to kind of reimagine and reinvigorate and clean up the waterfront commission and, and by all accounts for the last 13 years um he's doing an excellent job you know he is he's he the real deal and so even given all of that history i kind of side with new jersey on this one and i know that's a little bit um it's, it goes against my home state, you know, and I, I hate to go against, you know, all the people I respect, all the people I respect and have worked for have signed on and said, New York should that keep the Waterfront Commission. And so it's hard for me to go against uh, to go against what um, people I respect believe. But I, I just really think it's a little outdated. You know, it's it was it was created because, you know, there was the mafia and there were all these sort of um horrible things going down there but really it's it's now i think kind of outdated red tape and, yeah. you know, and so I think that it's really caused a little bit of a an issue. If you ask people who work there or union people, it's really caused an issue for them to attract good people and to hire people and to be nimble and to modernize, you know, and it's time to modernize. And so and and the other thing, too, is it, they, they really have sort of a policing function. And we have enough, you know, we have the state police, we have the New York City police, we have the New Jersey state troopers, we have, you know, federal the federal all, all the different agencies that the feds could could do there. We've got many prosecutors. I mean, there's kind of more than enough. We're, we're not, you know, sort of in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know other I mean, it's not the only waterfront, you know, two state waterfront in the United States. And and I don't know other waterfront agencies that have this kind of agency that mires you down in red tape. And do you do these background checks? And it's just, you know, I'm not saying walk away and have lawlessness, but it just seems like this is a relic of the past and it's kind of time to modernize like i said i feel weird saying it but i think the issue it comes down to the question you asked which is can a state unilaterally unilaterally pull out and what does this mean for other unilateral kind of agreements between new jersey and new york well, i think but that's you- where
0: i think that's where i think jersey is right i think if the if the contract that you sign with your fellow state is silent about who and how you can depart the agreement i think you're allowed to depart the agreement otherwise what, what's what's New York's position, being led by the New York Attorney General Tish James and Governor Hokul? You can never leave the contract. Well, that was the other thing, silence? exactly.
1: Yeah, Ever? or even it's if good. even if it is, even if it's not silent, even if it says something. Do I mean, can you really bind two forever? states forever? I mean, it seems right. I'm not a contract lawyer, but that seems ridiculous <laughs> too. You know, I, so I, well
0: that that's the point. Now, this is an interesting procedural thing, and we'll 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 round it out here. The the state was act. New Jersey was actually sued first by the commission. I don't even know how when you have when you have two people. <laughs> the The New Jersey commissioner and the New York commissioner agreed to sue New Jersey. It was really weird, but the commission in its own name sued New Jersey and lost. It went all the way up to the third the third circuit, which is the circuit for appeals in New Jersey for New Jersey, and they lost. And then the Supreme Court looked at the matter and refused to take up grant what's called certiorari and refused to take the appeal. So New Jersey was like, okay, we won at the third. The Supreme Court didn't tell us anything different. Let's dissolve the commission. And they had a whole plan. It's not like, like you said, it's not like they were just going to like, leave it to like some chaotic state and see what happens at the port. You know, they were going to use the New Jersey state police and their investigative units to police and license and do background checks and that type of thing, because they're set up for it and they're already there. And and that's what New Jersey was going to do until Governor cool. And I know she's a friend of the pod and she's a friend of the. Might I know State that's why
1: I said it's hard for me to go against this. But and I, Tish you know. James,
0: New York attorney general. We like her in a lot of different areas. Yeah, I love them. But she brings a case in March where she goes directly to the U.S. Supreme Court because it's one of the few things that you don't that you don't go. States don't go to a lower level court when they have a dispute with each other, states by constitutional right go to the US Supreme Court who sit as a trial court, not as an appeal court. It's one of the few areas, there's only a couple, has to do also with countries that fight with each other or fight with the United States. But that then the Supreme Court doesn't wear its appellate hat looking it wears at the
1: its, record. It wears this divorce court hat. It
0: wears its divorce court hat. Because New, right? New Jersey sure.
1: and New York are trying to get divorced.
0: Oh, and they need a divorce. Now, interestingly, <laughs> even though uh, the Supreme Court, when the case was the commission versus New Jersey, the Supreme Court did not agree to take the appeal and sort of let it lie with the Third Circuit's ruling in favor of New Jersey. Now, they've actually issued as a trial court an injunction as of a month or so ago to stop New Jersey from pulling out of the commission, taking its fees with it. That's really what this is about, money. If New Jersey doesn't pay the fees, this commission has no money, and it basically goes out of business. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? Let's preserve the status quo until we have a chance to rule. But they haven't even said they're going to take the case. It's the weirdest procedural posture so far that I've seen. Supreme so why ta- did the
1: commission go to the federal courts and the, and have to go to the third circuit? Why didn't they just go straight to the Supreme Court? Because
0: it wasn't New York versus it wasn't a state versus a state. It was a commission versus a state. And that can that can stay at the lower level because the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is supre- no pun intended. It's supremely limited to a very narrow set of things, state versus state. State versus another country, another country versus another country or the United States. That that goes fast track, trial court, Supreme Court. Everything else, if you don't have those combinations, you have to go to the you know, the Supreme Court's like, no. So that's the that's another peculiarity. So we don't even know if the Supreme Court's going to ultimately rule, but they did issue an injunction, and we'll have to follow it. I thought it was a good way for the legal IFFers to learn about the Supreme Court in a different context. In this case, original jurisdiction when they sit as a trial level court, and also I think it's fascinating to watch New, New York and New Jersey bash their brains in about about the about the waterfront. The as thing if, is, I
1: always you know, side with New York. But not, not you time. know that's you, not, why this one I yeah. thought you know because yeah, so yeah. I'm a and, New Yorker I am not a New Jersey
0: and and I I like the case because I you know I'll, I'll do a shout out I uh, Tom Dewey was the governor when in yeah. New York when the waterfront commission was created and I'm friendly with Tom. Tom Dewey's uh, grandson, His who's grandson. a very well, very yeah. well known lawyer here in town. Who's New also New York a friend, City bar, right? Yeah, as a friend of Cy Vance and all that. So yeah. this whole yeah, thing yeah. become this whole thing goes spiraling around. Let's you, move you know, on. I, so,
1: so really quick, yeah. I had to just say one other quick story. I remember I'm just remembering as we sit here. I trained the Waterfront front commission employees because they have a staff. I trained them all on sexual harassment and sexual assault and all of that. So anyway, I just remembered yeah. that as we're sitting here, but let's uh-huh. move on.
0: This is what we bring to the pod. So let's move on to what is happening in North Dakota federal court with uh, Judge Daniel Trainer. This one kills me. Yeah. Who, um, before he got appointed to the federal bench, uh, worked for his great grandfather's personal injury law firm in North Dakota, and then got appointed in 2019 by Trump and then ultimately confirmed. He's decided that the, uh, this is a case that was brought by the Christian Employers Alliance, which is a self-funding entity, apparently of Christian employers who um, are are under the auspices of Obamacare passed a decade ago, more than a decade ago, another chipping away, attack at things uh, on on the uh, Democratic Progressive Agenda um, or docket, in this case, can an insurer, in this case a Christian one, refuse to provide gender-affirming Healthcare, in effect, uh, discriminating against people who are transgender or otherwise. Can they do that and not violate federal law, violate um, uh, what's called a title a title uh, 7 action um, and and under the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, the EEOC, whether whether they will be found to be discriminatory. And this entity, this insurer, this Christian entity said, It would violate our First Amendment rights of freedom of religion to force us to pay, to have, and this was in their briefs that the judge adopted, babies have sex change operations. I can almost barely get that out without cracking up, but this is the boogeyman under your bed that Republicans and QAnons use to portray Democrats as out of sync with mainstream America when we are. So they take something that is not in the Biden administration regulations, nor in the language of Obamacare, and they take it to a ridiculous extreme- Nor would of, any
1: doctor do it, or- nor, nor
0: would any doctor give a sex change operation to a baby and use that as a way to get the judge's attention with a shiny object and say, hey judge, you got to enjoy this, or. Or, or doctors all over America are going to be giving sex changes to babies and I would have thought the judge would say, well, I don't think that's happening but here's a, here's a reasonable uh, with integrity analysis of why you know the First Amendment is violated by that provision of the of the Obamacare. But no, he said I got to stop babies from being having gender affirming um, sex change operations and he has enjoined for now, the EEOC, EEOC, at least in North Dakota, from enforcing the anti-discrimination provisions of Obamacare. And then it'll So you don't think, up, this, app- yeah. so you don't think uh, this
1: applies, since he's the only judge who's ruled on it, you don't think it applies nationwide uh, until another uh, judge comes in and rules?
0: Well, it, it, close. It, I don't think he issued a nationwide injunction. However, if he's the only precedent that is yeah. out there, it's sort of the binding precedent That could be. But, you know, another judge somewhere else could say, especially outside of North Dakota, like a New York federal judge sitting in the Southern District of New York, I don't think is going to adopt the reasoning there. And then we're going to have a conflict between two two of them, has to go up to their appellate courts, the appellate court for North Dakota, I don't recall which one that, I want to say the eighth, but I'm not sure. And the probably the eighth and then the appellate court for New York. And then that would end up at the Supreme court where they love, they love themselves, their first amendment religious rights led by Amy Coney Barrett at the Supreme court. So for people that think, no, when it finally gets to the Supreme court, you know, justice will prevail and adults will make proper decisions. Mm, I'm not sure about that. What do you think, Karen?
1: So I have two. I have two thoughts and two questions. So first of all, I'm, I'm just thinking back to the mask mandate case. Do you remember the woman? I can't remember which judge it was. No, it was the Northern
0: District of Florida.
1: Yeah, whatever her name was. Um, and that and that was just they forum shopped they found a friendly judge and she ruled the one who had been a a judge for five minutes she she like you know never practiced law etc her name will come to me um and and that was everybody decided okay that applies nationwide you know because she was the only judge who ruled the who ruled that way and i guess my question is why is this different than that in other words why in, in that particular case she could make she could rule on a case and, and the implementation of something in Florida but it has nationwide implications because it's the only one who's ruled that way and then of course everybody you know said no masks you know on the, on the airplanes well, like it depends as the on airplanes what they're are flying. It,
0: it depends on what they're asked if, if the court the court can try to grant a nationwide injunction if it's briefed and they're, and, and that's the request. Some judges realize that they shouldn't grant uh, nationwide, but the the problem with these attacks on the Biden and Obama administration is the plaintiffs are always asking for nationwide injunctions and until, you know, and then you have judges like Reed O'Connor, who's the go-to, usually I'm surprised this actually wasn't filed in the Northern District of Texas in front of Reed O'Connor He's the one that took away Biden's role as the commander-in-chief about the SEALs being vaccinated, but mm-hmm. he also ruled about the Catholic insurers not being required to do certain things that were against their First Amendment rights, which I'm sure was case law cited in the case in front of Judge Trainer in the Northern District of, of Dakota. But you're so right that these plaintiffs groups are finding that those, those uh, uh, judges that will give them the result that they want, knowing that they have the numbers at the US Supreme Court, if they can just get a federal judge. And then they also have to find a federal judge in a really friendly uh, circuit, like the Fifth Circuit, the 11th Circuit, may have to look a little more into the Eighth Circuit. They don't want to put cases where the Second Circuit out of New York is going to make a ruling, or the Ninth Circuit out of California, because they know that's not going to be in their favor. So they so they do two things: the circuit, the trial court, and then the judge. And the How judge are they is able a little, to
1: forum shop like that? How can you? Well, the judge, the judge is a
0: little bit different because yeah. the judge is generally a wheel that spins, but they're looking for places where, frankly, there aren't a lot of judges. How many federal judges are there in the Northern District? No, in the District of North Dakota. How many people are in, are in North Dakota? There's pro- I'm gonna look it up before we're done. I wanna say there's five, because Utah's got like four. So you got a one in five chance, or you got better odds if that group is whatever. You, you try to file something in New York or California, you've got dozens of judges that you have to pick pick your way through. So so there it's it's maniacal and it's methodical about where they choose and how they try to thread that needle to find it. And then you've got to have well why are they in that court? Like what is the jurisdictional hook? What is the interest of that of that uh, what's that interest of the state that um that puts it in North Dakota? Well, Some of these insurers, some of these insurers, these businesses were in North Dakota. So it's all concocted from the very beginning. You get these groups that they make up, they find a plaintiff, they create a plaintiff, they create a law firm around the plaintiff. They find the the, the place of least resistance. They file it there. They pray to, to their God that they'll get one of the two judges that they're looking for. They get it. If they don't get it, they dismiss it. If they don't get the judge they want, they will dismiss the case and try again another day.
1: So what is the specific finding and holding and ruling and how does it translate to
0: it's real life
1: said. transgender people in <laughs> yeah. North Dakota? No, really. Like what? Like from a from a like.
0: It's, so what, I is this... it's what I said. The insurers can discriminate against people seeking gender affirming care by not paying for it. And it will not be found while the injunction is placed to be a violation of Obamacare, and therefore a violation of federal law that the EEOC enforces. So the EEOC cannot find that the insurers have discriminated against people who are transgender or looking for gender-affirming health care, if there is a denial of coverage by the insurance company. But insurance,
1: but but it but insurers can also pay it. In other words, if I'm a uh, you know, if I'm an insurance company that wants to stand up to for this, you know, stand up to this sort of nonsense, I can still say I am going to pay for this if it's if it's deemed between, you know, the individual and the doctor to be um, medically appropriate. Right? Like an insurance company can still do that, right? If they want, like-
0: Every, I, I, every insurance company, every insurance company does it um, and because they don't want to violate the anti-discrimination provision of Obamacare, except groups that are religious have tried to, to argue that you cannot find that I have discriminated because I have a first amendment right to religious freedom. This is the first injunction in 10 years, 15 years of Obamacare against the application of the non-discrimination provision on religious grounds. Second, if you count the one that Reed Smith did in Texas. And back to my and back to my earlier point, as I suspected, there are two judges, two federal judges in the District of North Dakota. That's it. So you got a one in two chance. Perfect place wow. to file. Yeah. So that's where we are on that. And we will follow that. And as it moves its way, and it is the Eighth Circuit, as it moves its way to the Eighth Circuit, we'll see what the panel is. And there'll be an appeal. uh, I'm sure a fast track appeal based on the injunction. And we will go from there. And um, in the meantime, religious organizations that choose not to pay uh, claims related to gender affirming health care um, will it looks like for now not have to worry about being found to be in uh, in a discriminatory posture. Period. That's where we are with that. So um, in this uplifting edition of the Legal AF Midweek, let's go to um, the Supreme Court and what it did in a six to three decision written by Justice Thomas to attack and undermine what had always been the last resort of a prisoner, many of them on death row. Um, to argue that they had ineffective assistance of counsel um in the um in their state court because most of these are state court proceedings but there was always a path to the federal court on a habeas corpus petition to argue that that the prisoner at the trial level in his state had ineffective counsel because they missed something they didn't bring forward evidence that would have exonerated uh, what we call exculpatory evidence at the trial level. They didn't properly investigate mental capacity or the inability of the prisoner to have committed the crime because he had a six IQ or or she had a six IQ or something like that. And justice Thomas, you know, just, you know, biding his time until he got the numbers has now revisited yet another, another precedent that's only about 10 years old or so and said yeah what we said in the case from 10 years ago martinez about ineffective assistance of counsel is true except if your appellate lawyer the lawyer that you use to to bring your case has not properly doesn't have the facts that he needs or she needs from the from the lower case to prove ineffective counsel by the trial level, they're not going to be able to have an evidentiary hearing or a mini trial over the issue, no more new evidence to assist that claim. If it's not already in the box from the trial level, we're not going to allow the appellate lawyer to to develop new law to support that petition, meaning more people who may be innocent are going to die on death row. What are your thoughts there, Karen? So,
1: you know, this one is very ironic to me that ineffective assistance of counsel claims that succeed means in layperson's terms, you had a terrible, shitty lawyer. Okay. I mean, that that's what it means. And what this ruling is basically saying is that you can't, if, if, if your lawyer was so shitty that it wasn't raised below or developed below, you can't raise this uh, in federal court, and so to me that's just ironic because, and you know, and there's no guarantee that you're going to have, um, you know, an, an appellate attorney, right? You know, I guess if you're if you're a death penalty, um, if it's a death penalty case, you'll have a, a an appellate attorney, but you know, you don't have a constitutional right. The Sixth Amendment does not guarantee the right to counsel post conviction, and so you know, some are better than others, you know. And if they don't, I like the way you said it. If they don't have the facts, you know, and and they get them later, I, I'm actually thinking. They're just not that potentially not that good of a lawyer and they don't raise the issue. And so therefore you are barred from raising that issue above. And and especially in a death penalty case, you know, that this should not be an area where we where we hang on um, procedural Um, procedural technicalities, you know, when you're taking away someone's life, you know, in a death penalty case. And, and, you know, it's, it's about the, that's about the one thing in the criminal justice system, obviously can never be reversed. It can never be changed. And you got to make sure you get it right. A thousand percent. You know, and there's the famous quote, you know, it's better to let an innocent person go for, go free than to, con- you know, to, um, sorry, a guilty person to go free than to convict an innocent person. And every prosecutor I ever worked with believes that to their core. And, you know, it's, it, you got to get it right. And in a death penalty case, I just don't understand, you know, how they could possibly, from just a, a humane and humanity standpoint, you know, you look back in history and all the times that people post being, um, post being um, killed, frankly, you know, it's, I, I always think the death penalty, just, just to put my cards on the table, it's premeditated murder, uh, you know, and the part of the government. Um, so I'm very anti-death penalty, even if you know a 1000% that you got the right person. And even if it's the worst crime on the face of the earth, I, I just personally think it's premeditated murder. Um, but that, But putting that aside, You got to get if you're going to do it. You got to get it right, and you got to get it right a thousand percent of the time. And you know, if if you had a terrible lawyer or your lawyer was ineffective, and they didn't pursue um, claims of innocence, for example, that's something that should never be pursued. Really barred, in my opinion. Similar to if if you are um, if you have you know a low IQ and you're mentally disabled. I mean those are those are, again aren't procedural technicalities you know that's not like you weren't read your miranda warnings or you know you didn't get a search warrant or something when you should have you know those, those these are fundamental you know you didn't get these are fundamental things that go to towards your ability to formulate intent And your guilt, your ultimate guilt or innocence. And again, if you're going to take someone's life, to me, to eviscerate the ability to make these arguments, and the Supreme Court are just, you know, they're just completely wrong. And it's, it's in some ways, it's, it's incentivizing um, bad lawyering, you know, frankly, because you can't. There's no consequence to it. There's no consequence um, even at the appellate level, because if you don't raise it then, you know, you haven't preserved it. So, so this is a case, you know, the, the other thing about this case that was strange, in addition to what you mentioned about how it's overruling yet another precedent and eviscerating yet another precedent, And, you know, to me, 10 years is not, you know, we say only 10 years, that's because we're comparing it to the leaked, you know, um, Dobbs versus Mississippi precedent, but 10 years is still precedent. Um, But here, you know, this is, this is a case where, where they're saying um, basically there's a statute, you know, the anti-terrorism and discrimination, what is it? AEDPA stand for, I almost can't, I can't ever remember. Um, It's the anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act is what it stands for. Um, And that's a statute that was passed in 1996 that essentially says um, that, you know, federal courts cannot hold evidentiary hearings if the defendant did not develop the facts in below in state court. But then, in 2012, so 2012 is after the 19 after 1996, the Supreme Court ruled in a in a case of um, called Martinez, where they ruled that there is, um, you know, ruled basically that you can in these instances make these arguments about ineffective assistance of counsel, et cetera. You know, and, and basically in this particular case, what they're saying is the statute the statute trumps a case, you know, they're saying that Martinez was judge made or judge created law and statutes, which is the legislative body, you know, they created, you know, the anti-terrorism and death penalty act. And so that controls. And so they didn't want you to be able to do it. So that's the one that controls. And I think Thomas in his, you know, 22 page uh, decision, you know, 11 of which where it was all, all he did was talk about the terrible facts, you know, because this is a bad case, terrible guy, you know, so that you don't feel sorry for him and that you'll ultimately say, okay, you you did the right thing here. You know, he's basically signaling that what well, he's always signaled and he's just consistent that he doesn't believe in in judge created law. He thinks that, you know, judges should call balls and strikes. And if the, if the legislature or the Constitution or, you know, someone else wants to, to write the law and write the statute, that's what controls. And that's it. And 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 this is another case where they just said it doesn't matter that there's precedent. We're going to go with what the black letter law says and, and we're going to interpret it that way. But I, I think he got it wrong here. And I will say. I miss the days when he didn't talk, you know, is it true? He didn't. Is it true that he only asked one question the entire time in oral arguments that he was um, on the bench until the pandemic and when they went to Zoom and now we, we can't shut him up? Is, is, that, well, is that, that true? Well,
0: it's that it's, it's sort it's partially true when he was in the minority or when the court was closer to a five, four, where where decisions hang hung in the balance depending upon consensus building in the opinions. He rarely spoke. When he's gotten emboldened after Trump, um, and now we know why, with the Ginny Thomas revelations uh, and the emails about Jan 6, he's gotten emboldened with the addition of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and now Amy Coney Barrett. And as as he got the numbers, as I like to say, he's gotten more vocal. And now he's written more decisions that matter in the majority. Yeah, this is now, this is the, uh, the last two years, we are seeing the um, renaissance of Clarence Thomas. He's bided his time for 30 years. You know, he went through a um, appropriately rough confirmation process because of his own sexual abuse and misconduct. And he's never forgotten what he's called at the time the electronic lynching that he went through, the televised lynching that he said he went through purposely using um, uh, language, loaded language, uh, race-based language related to, he's never gotten over it and he's just waited to get into the majority. And now we are seeing um, that he's, it's payback time and anything that he and the others have seen on the shelf of the Supreme Court in terms of precedent that they haven't liked, I think they they must have a list of the things over the last twenty years, and it's just clear the shelves time. Uh, while we still have the numbers, let's just let's with well, that precedent. Y'all yeah, want to get rid of that abortion? Sure, let's get rid of that. All the stuff we had about privacy rights, trans transgender people, and gay rights. Nope, that's gone. You know, you know it, until we don't have the numbers, which completely you know hollows out the argument, as he likes to say, and Roberts likes to say is. We're not, we're not a political bunch, we're umpires, balls and strikes. Nothing could be further from the truth and it's laughable to have them, and they'll continue to do it all summer while they're on hiatus um, until we see the appearance of, of um, Katanji Brown Jackson, who just got through picking all her clerks and she's ready for the new term. But the summer is usually when they take a little bit of vacation, They get all these uh, expense paid trips to foreign countries to talk about comparative law. They go to law schools. uh, Like unfortunately mine, I just found out that Alito of all things has been a visiting professor at Duke for the last year. I've written something about that. Having now found out about it and how embarrassed I am about that, but you will see a fair amount of vocal defense about the, uh, from the six in the majority about them and what they've done. And we'll see more of that over the summer. And and now that Breyer will be retired, I would like to see what he says. Is he just going to slink off like, you know, like you never hear from the ex-Pope again, like when Benedict resigned, you never heard from him again. Are we going to hear from Breyer about what's I really so. going on there? I hope yeah, so. Yeah, I think so. Or is I he going to so. slink off like Souter who's never, no. who was never heard from again, Kennedy is a different you know, time. Different well, time. Let's, let's see. Let's see. I, I, I hope you're right. Well, let's move on. We've, I think we've covered as much as we can cover about this decision. Let's move on and end the show with um, not Tish James uh, fighting it out with the Trump organization, but, but an entity we haven't heard from in a while as it relates to Donald Trump. And that is Alvin Bragg's Manhattan DA's office and the reappearance of Solomon Rock, who I swore had been fired from the investigation because we hadn't heard from him in a while. And Alvin, probably sensing that he, that that uh, Solomon Rock, the assistant district attorney, needed to make an appearance, went to court and argued against, or filed a paper anyway, and argued against the motion to dismiss that was filed Way back in February, I don't know why this is just being fully brief now in May, but back in February, the Trump organization and Alan Weisselberg, the former chief financial officer, filed a dismissal, argue uh, of their charges against them. Weisselberg having been, um, we, we forget, there's a couple of entities that have been charged with crimes by Cy Vance and or Alvin Bragg, the Trump organization being one of them. And... Um, and Allen Weisselberg based on, on some grand jury testimony. Part of it is his, his um, uh, former uh, daughter-in-law, Jennifer Weisselberg, who testified about tens of thousands of pages of documents sitting in their house about what her father-in-law did and what all the money that he got unreported from a tax standpoint, which is because it's a tax evasion prosecution, Totaling a million five over fifteen years, private schools being paid for by Trump that was not taxable income to Alan Weiselberg, chauffeured limousines, Ubers, you know, uh, apartments that were bought not just for Alan Weiselberg and paid for, but but also for um, his his uh, son, and all of that. And so they argued in their moving papers, Trump Organization and Alan Weiselberg, that this is a vendetta of Tish James again, they got the wrong office, that's one problem, that it's selective prosecution, I want you to talk about selective prosecution, that he has immunity because he testified against Michael Cohen in a federal grand jury and therefore he has some sort of immunity from suit in the state proceeding. So we've got federal versus state immunity, Karen, we've got selective prosecution as a defense and then we've got something that you'll be able to comment on, the vengeful witness doctrine. When you have a vengeful witness, they think this is all concocted by Michael Cohen, who gave to the Manhattan DA's office, in their view, all of the information about, about uh, Weisselberg to pay Weisselberg back because Weisselberg testified against Michael Cohen in the federal case. This is this is amazing. And, and I'll leave it this until I turn it over to you. I'll leave it on this one. Solomon Scheinrock, on behalf of the office, files the brief and says, this is in the the opening preliminary statement. He says, this is an ordinary case, an ordinary case of tax evasion. Nothing says ordinary case like 117 page. That's what I thought. I was like, come on. You know, there's like nothing Sullivan, ordinary it were, about this, right? If it's ordinary, you know, do like 20 pages, 117 I know, pages. I know. But there's nothing to, ordinary
1: had, about this case.
0: He had to address all of the defenses that were raised. Let's start with each one of them. What the heck is Weiselberg trying to argue with federal and federal and state immunity from grand jury testimony, selective prosecution defense, and vengeful witness? Walk us through it succinctly.
1: So, um. So basically this case, so, you know, it's interesting, this brief, as you just said, this is anything but ordinary. This was 117 pages of a lot to unpack. And so that's why it took three months. This is a beautifully written, beautifully sourced, you know, this probably went through many, many, many different uh, brilliant legal minds in the Manhattan DA's office to get this exactly right. And it's it, it basically is saying that um, I mean, and, and you know, they make the the Weisselberg and Trump Org made uh, kind of twin motions to dismiss. And this was the response to both of them. I, I don't know if you noticed buried on like page you know, 111 of 117, they do admit the Manhattan DA's office does admit that one of the counts was barred by the statute of limitations, which, you know, I I thought they sort of buried that in there, but it was sort of a nothing, a nothing thing to concede. But there were some, some pretty, you know, heady legal questions. So um, one of them, as you said, was sort of this, you know, um, can the state bring this case because it's really talking about federal tax crimes. And, you know, that 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 a tax prosecution is federal. Well, you know, in New York, we pay state tax and we pay federal tax. And so we both have jurisdiction. And so they sort of address that in that that it's something that, you know, that that New York prosecutes all the time. And that is true, you know, and so that in the sense and I think what what Solomon Scheinrock was saying about this is at its core, ordinary is the fact that the state does prosecute state tax or you know just tax evasion or tax related cases all the time. So that is the thing that's ordinary. You know, nothing about this case is ordinary, as you said, but but that is what's ordinary. And that was the argument that he was making. Um, and so but, you know, they were trying to say, no, this this is not appropriate. Uh, but what federal... is
0: selective? Yeah. But what is selective prosecution? Because that's let's take the three defenses. What's selective prosecution? How does it work?
1: So selective prosecution, the claim is you basically have to I, I, if I remember correctly, this is something that um, that is there's a that basically. OK, let's back up. When you are analyzing whether a prosecution is a selective prosecution claim, there's a presumption of good faith, right, and a presumption of regularity on the part of the prosecution. So you presume that, but the the defense has to allege that uh, that somehow you were prosecuted because of race or religion, or somehow that this law was applied to you different. Than other people who were similarly situated. And so that was what they were trying to say, was you're singling me out. not now, Obviously not because of race or religion or anything like that, but you're singling me out because I was associated with the Trump organization and you're hoping that I will cooperate against him. And when I didn't, you brought this case against me and that's why you're sort of selectively prosecuting me and vengefully prosecuting me. I mean, that's essentially what these papers are alleging. And so And so the DA's office had to take these claims one by one and had to address them and show how First of all, no, this is an ordinary prosecution. They do this all the time. Second of all, um, just because, you know, you came in to talk about whether or not you're going to cooperate in good faith. We do that all the time. We you decided not to. That's fine. You know, We still went forward. The other thing they tried to say was that this was a, a vendetta that Tish James had against Uh, against um, Weisselberg and and that that's what was sort of the animus here. And so the other thing that the DA's office had to dispel was kind of how did this case start and when did it start? And, you know, they they talked about how there was an investigation for going on and then they put it on ice for a long time because the it looked like the feds were doing this. And in fact, the feds actually gave Weisselberg immunity. And he testified against Michael Cohen, who was prosecuted um, federally. And so what 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 these papers said and what these papers established was that, no, this was actually this actually came from um, an article that the prosecutors read in Bloomberg in, um, I think, 2021. And um, and that's what caused them to kind of dust off their investigation and look at it again because there was some detailed uh, there was some detailed information. Actually, no, I think it was 2020 in November of 2020. There was um, the there was journalists from Bloomberg that that had an article um, that talked about these violations, and so it, they sort of dusted off their file and said um, and said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna investigate this. Now they also the Manhattan DA's office, and this is in their papers, walled themselves off from the federal prosecution because Weisselberg was granted immunity. And so they can't because Weiselberg was granted immunity. They can't get any information as a result of his cooperation or testimony or his compelled testimony because he was granted immunity for compelled testimony. And they walled um, them. Just- and
0: one last thing, they walled themselves off from the New York Attorney General's investigation because the reporting is that not that they did not know at the time that both offices, the New York attorney general, and the Manhattan DAs on the state side were both investigating Weisselberg. Correct. Correct. Right.
1: But then in March of 2021, um, uh, the state tax, okay. Referred the case, to a, a tax referral. So remember we talked a while back about, you know, do you do we want the Jan six committee to make a referral to the DOJ? And we talked about that. And I said it's not a thing. You know, a criminal referral is not a thing. You don't need that. There's an exception. And that's in tax cases because tax your tax records are kind of sacrosanct. You know, it's almost like that's why it was so hard to get the Trump tax records, it's like medical records, or you know it's one of these sp- sort of special things that's very, very hard to get. And so you can't even get um, your state, you can't get your tax records unless there's a, a, a referral. And so the New York State Tax Department um, I can't remember what the agency is called off the top of my head right now, but they referred the case to Tish James. And so that's when they all sort of came together and Tish James brought um, and it kind of did a joint investigation and, and they sort of um, went forward. But just to kind of, you know, keep each other informed, Vance, you know, and in these papers, it said Vance did all the decision making James Tish James did none. She had no authority, no decision making, nothing. This was a Cy Vance led investigation. um, And all of this was laid out in the in the um, moving papers, the affirmation in the moving papers. But it was very interesting. A lot of it was very arcane. And, you know, I I just thought I I have to admit that I kind of skimmed part of it because I just couldn't bear to read some of you know some of the stuff that they were saying, but but basically that's the gist of what was going on. Um, but I think it's beautifully written and um, and and very well done. So, so here yet. here's
0: here's our prediction, and you tell me if we're wrong. The moving papers to dismiss the motion to, to dismiss the indictment against the Trump Organization and Weiselberg is going to be rejected by the court. Oh, a thousand
1: percent, yeah, and the percent. right,
0: th- right. Don't hedge, a thousand percent. <laughs> Uh, that that's going to be rejected and the three main defenses that weisselberg has raised one that he had immunity at the federal level doesn't apply in a state level prosecution that the that the uh, as the papers lay out filed by the manhattan da that selective prosecution has not happened here that it's he's not being singled out because of some condition or animus or vengeful prosecutor because the vengeful prosecutor, by the way, is the wrong one. This is the Manhattan DA's office that, that, is, that is bringing the case as a prosecution, not the civil side with Tish James. And thirdly, the vengeful witness... Which is, your, which is the argument that the entire indictment is somehow based on Michael oh, Cohen. Oh, I forgot
1: that, yes, exactly. Uh, Michael
0: Cohen goes out the window because I think they made, as you said in the beautifully written papers, a legitimate good faith argument that it had nothing to do with Michael Cohen, that they did not pick up this investigation on the, on the criminal side until the Bloomberg piece in which Bloomberg, who obviously had a cooperating you know informant probably at the accounting firm, started to say, We should look into Weisselberg and all the luxury items in his life that are being paid by the Trump organization and whether he's paying taxes on that. Now, let me ask you a final question related to this piece. How often as a prosecutor did you get or did the people under you get leads that were found because of the First Amendment and news reporting agencies bringing basically stories and possible uh, criminal investigations to you. How often does that happen? All the time. All the time.
1: All the time. The Manhattan DA's office. I mean, Hmm. not every DA's office is like that, but especially in the... the, um, investigation division where they prosecute long term white collar cases. You know, you, they have staff who literally that's where they get a many of their leads. You know, so they you just, have they staff start-
0: at the Manhattan D.A.'s office that combs through The New York Times and all the other all the other newspapers, Bloomberg looking for possible things. And then what do they do? They're a researcher. What do they do with that? information? Oh, I just saw like you and we talked about art theft we talked about the kim kardashian gold dress next to the stolen sarcophagus at the met okay somebody some researcher you know your 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 daughter works in one of these offices mm-hmm. fi- finds it and and brings it to whom? Who vets this? So it gets so, up and escalates to somebody like you.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it it, it happens not just in white collar cases. It happens in hate crimes cases. It happens in sex trafficking cases. Right. But how happens, does it happen?
0: How does it go? So to the it, next people.
1: Person? So so basically. You have people whose job it is to basically who's who's looking underneath the surface, you know, and looking for it. This is presenting as one thing, but it could be much more serious or much worse. So so what happens is, let's say a white collar matter, you know, just just to continue this thread, um, they'll, they'll look into something, they'll read about it, and they'll say, oh, this, first of all, it's a reputable news agency. You know, it's one that has multiple, you know, they're going to, they're not going to just write something because one person said it, or it's not, um, it's not legitimate. So it has to be a reputable news agency that you know has multiple sources and confirms the information, etc. You know, that's sort of that's primary. And then second of all, they'll start to look at other there are other sort of public information that's out there and they'll start to do research. You know, you can sort of research public databases, you can do research on people, you can also um you know, look at other types of financial information that's available to law enforcement. And they'll start to do research and they'll start to try to confirm some of the information that's out there and start to build enough information um, that looks like it's worthy of issuing subpoenas. And so what have you got to do? But wait, you just
0: just wallpapered over my question and I'm going to hold you to it. I'm the researcher. I find it. Where do I go next? I go knock on your door. Or is there another person? How do I get OK? So yeah. so
1: there are there are teams and units at the Manhattan DA's office. So and um, and they work with lawyers. And so you'll have the financial frauds particular unit or you'll have the cybercrime unit or you'll have the major economic crimes unit or, um, you know, there's there's different sort of units and bureaus and, and sort of groupings of people that have a support network that works um, for these types of long-term investigatory cases. And so depending on the type of case that they uncover, they will go to the assistant district attorney that specializes in that particular type of work. And they'll work together to start to develop the information further, they'll say and or sometimes the assistant dis- district attorney sees the same thing and goes to the analyst and says to the analyst, let's start to analyze this. It could co- go from either place. So mm-hmm. so you basically, you, you know, you also get things from law enforcement. You get leads, you get leads from, you know, Good Samaritans and whistleblowers. You, you get, you know, you get leads from all sorts of places. But but in this particular type of instance you know and so you whether it comes from the the lawyer or the analyst is they're really teams of and 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 they have they have accountants they have um, real experts that work at the Manhattan DA's office the, these you know some of them are are you know young kind of you know just really um, excellent kind of investigators investigators but some have really extraordinary expertise that um, that they know how to uh, develop this information whether especially in the in the area of financial crimes i mean you know you, you need a particular type of of expertise and financial crime expertise so you know they have they have teams of i mean just to give you a context the manhattan da's office has about 500 or so lawyers and about 1200 support staff so there's way more staff than lawyers and many of those staff are investigators and analysts and paralegals and so you know it's it's like they have you know their own police force in a way but it's it's not just a police force it's a police force plus you know this this sort of forensic accounting and forensic um you know financial uh, accounting abilities so it's it's really extraordinary because they have experts that, you know, I, I they, they have experts in so many different areas, whether it's art fraud or terrorism or you know, forensic accounting or you know, financial crimes or human trafficking or cybercrime, or you, you know, you I could go on and on and on, obviously. But it's so in this particular type of situation, you develop the case together. You use all the tools. And it could be, you know, with the cybercrime unit and the cyber cybercrime investigators and the um analysts from you know, the the financial crime, you know, kind of experts or the the account or whatever it is, you, you build your team and you start to, you know, you start to kind of pull threads and you start to see what's there. And then, and then you open up a grand jury investigation and you start issuing subpoenas and then you get document, you know, subpoenas for, for documents. And then you get those documents and the documents come in and you look at those and those lead you to other documents. And you talk to witnesses and you build a case and it could take years. It can take many, many, many years. And, and it, that frustrates a lot of people, you know, especially the, um, the The Trump prosecution um, that I pre- predicted and will predict will be a prosecution, and I even think it's going to be Alvin Bragg. You know, I think it could also be um, it could also be the Department of Justice, or it could also be Georgia or somewhere else. But I actually think the Manhattan DA's office is going to ultimately bring that case. Um, you know, that's, that, that's what I think. And I have zero inside information. Um, and I know I said, I thought the case was dead when, um, when Carrie Dunn and, um,
0: Mark Pomerantz
1: Pomerantz resigned, but I I still think they're going to bring a case, but it takes a long time. These are, these are painstaking methodical, um, uh, investigations when it's not a former president of the United States and when it's a former president of the United States and someone who might run again, you're not going to you're, you're going to do everything you can to get everything you can. And and that's what I think they're doing. And I, I think they'll ultimately bring a case. That's that's my that's my prediction.
0: Well, I like the ones that involve the Manhattan DA's office because we really get under the hood with you with the, to the very molecular level in an interesting way that I don't think is out there, you know, with kind of any other pod. So I thank you for that. We've reached the end of another edition of the Midweek Pod for Legal AF with Michael Popock and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And um, we, we do this. We do this every week. We try to take two to three to four stories, rip from the headlines, and give you a deep dive analysis and an informed opinion about the cases, the procedural posture, the facts, where they're going, um, and we bring it uh, down to an authentic level that people can understand. Um, that's our wheelhouse—the intersection of law and politics. Um, that's what we do every week, and we're going to keep doing it until we look up one day and we have nobody listening to us. So, <laughs> fortunately for us, the audience has been growing uh, every week, leaps and bounds. For both, both the. Uh, the regular Legal AF podcast in the midweek, mid-week edition. So signing off for uh, this week's edition. I'm Michael Popak, and I'm joined by...
1: Karen friedman Great seeing we'll,
0: you. Yeah, you too. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.